You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Radical Personal Finance, Episode 47. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast for today, Monday, August 25, 2014. Thank you for being here, you awesome people, you. <laughs> I appreciate you listening. I'm excited about today's show. Today's show is going to be an interview show. What can we learn about personal finance from poker, startups, and PhDs in, com- in computer science? I hope that tickles your interest. Today's show is going to be an interview with a listener, and this listener, his name is Daniel Bernstein. And I'll tell you just a quick uh, couple of tidbits on his story, and then we'll just cut right to the interview. I'm, pre- I'm excited for you to hear today's interview. Uh, Daniel actually was a listener to the show, and he emailed me and said, Hey, dude, big fan. Thought I'd like, you might like to know something about my story. I really like what you're doing, and thought I'd tell you a little bit about my story. So uh, I said, Well, let's get you on the show, and, uh, and let's tell your story. And in his email, he, he, he piqued my interest, and he said, did a, I did a PhD in computer science, worked in a startup, played professional poker and then recently became financially independent and retired. So this was a really this is very interesting to me, especially the poker angle. And I've wanted to have somebody on the show who's a professional poker player. I'm fascinated with the and hopefully somebody that actually knows what they're doing and and hopefully this person would actually be someone who makes money at it. But I'm fascinated with the mindset that would go into being a professional gambler. I've read a few articles uh, written by professional gamblers and just totally really enjoyed them. And so Daniel uh, Daniel and I had a great conversation, and I'm excited to bring that to you today. I especially appreciated the fact that he's just a listener kind of right in the process. And as you'll hear in the interview, I... (laughs) I'm so tired of hearing certain people on the podcast circuit, and I love hearing from listeners because what my vision is is that this show becomes a community of like-minded people who are all learning and learning from one another. And sometimes it's hard to listen to somebody who's way down the road. It's hard to learn from somebody who's many steps ahead of you. Uh, frankly, getting financial advice from Donald Trump is not is probably not a very good plan for somebody who is making ten bucks an hour. I mean, it's good to take some lessons, and I mean, and I'm not disagreeing with my own premise of the show. What can we learn from the radical side, uh, from the radical? But sometimes it's a little easier just to go to the next step and say, "Who's closer to my situation?" And so that's where uh, 
I was excited to have Dan on the show as a listener. And I just want to upfront, if you are a listener and you think you've got a story or you think you've got something that you'd like to contribute to the show, uh, shoot me an email, joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com. And let me know. I've, I, I thank you for all those of you who have been emailing me and telling me a little bit about your story, telling me a little bit about, about your background. I really appreciate it, and I'm really benefiting from that. I'm not going to say a word more. Here's the interview. So, Daniel, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate your making the time to be with me today. Thanks. I'm excited to be on your uh, podcast. <laughs> so give me a little bit of background. First of all, you are a listener of the show. How did you find the show? And then, um, yeah, how did you find the show? And then why did you reach out to me originally? Right. So I, um, well, I found the show through Jacob Fisker of earlyretirementextreme.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that guy. I, I read pretty much everything he writes. And uh, I, was, I was excited to hear that he was going to be doing a podcast. Um, and so then I started listening to your other podcasts, and uh, you know it's all stuff I really enjoy. And you know I'm I'm sort of a personal finance junkie myself, and um, so uh, you know sort of that that's how I uh, I came across your your podcast, and um, I just thought it would be, be really fun to to come on and talk about my story. I think I have um, you know so I have kind of a unique angle um, that. Uh, I think your listeners might appreciate. Um, so yeah, that's basically it. Awesome. So share with us what what has been your story through through the financial world. Share us a little with us a little bit of your background. Sure. So um, as an undergrad, I studied uh, computer science. Uh, went on to do my PhD. Continued to study computer science. Um, at the time, I was really into artificial intelligence, um, and my specialty was uh, automated decision making under uncertainty. So decision making in random environments. So, Interesting. Yeah, I was in, into like uh, building robots that could uh, learn how to walk, or building like an automated backgammon player. Uh, stuff like that, um, you know, just just being able to feed a machine the problem and have it figure out the uh, decision making strategy. Ultimately, in the long run, I ended up doing a lot more human decision making with you know in random environments. But at, at the time, I was really interested in uh, machine learning and AI and all that stuff. So um, after uh, soon after I graduated, I found out that one of my professors uh, was starting a startup. And it was a very early stage startup, and I had the opportunity to join. And this is sort of the the first of, um, I guess, many gambles I took over the next decade. I had to decide whether to take the leap to join the startup and get paid only in stock because uh, there was no money yet, or go, you know, get a more traditional job where I you know, would actually be paid a salary. Uh, I did take the leap, and um, I worked at the startup for a year and a half. Um, it started to get pretty old after a year and a half, even though the, their money was coming in and, and things were going quite well. But um, I absolutely hated uh, being in a cubicle, having a boss, uh, didn't really like the work I was doing. Um, so I had to make another big decision to actually um, quit that job. And uh, what I ended up jumping off to was was to be a pro poker player. Really? So, so yeah, I, I had been... Um, I had been playing poker for fun uh, for the past few few years before that. Um, you know, it was really popular at the time. I got really into it. I, I was a pretty good player. Um, I knew there was money to be made, so I, I took a shot at it. Um, did that for five years. I actually, um, some people were playing online. I actually chose to play in the casino. I, I much prefer that version of the game. Um, 
I did that. Uh, after about five years, the game gradually the game started getting a little tougher. It was, it was harder to make money. I, I started getting a little nervous about the, the long, long, very long-term prospects of pro poker. Um, so I went back into the startup world, uh, worked at a later stage startup for a year. It was the same old story. I didn't like it. It was maybe a, a bit of a mistake. Um, uh, I guess another significant thing around that time, it was uh, about 2013, beginning of 2013, I made a bet on bitcoins. Um, and it's, I guess it's significant because it's sort of the first and possibly last speculative bet I will ever make. Um, it was just sort of the, it, it was just sort of the, everything came together at the right time. Um, you know, I have the background to be able to sort of understand it. I saw how it worked. And my wife, who studies computer science, also sort of understood that it works. And yet there was like a lot of fear and confusion surrounding it. So I said, man, I got to jump in here. This is, uh, you know, this this one really feels right. So I, I made that bet. And over the course of 2013, you know, was the price went up. I got, got quite lucky. And so that was great. Um, Did you cash out? I, uh, yeah, I ended up cashing out, uh, a lot, but good. you know, I still, I still hold, hold some because I do think it's a, right. it's a good thing to have in the portfolio. Sure. Um, and so I guess I, also in the years leading up to that, I had been studying, um, this early retirement stuff, reading Jacob Fisker's blog, really thinking really deeply about my spending and how to be more efficient and find synergies in my life and all that stuff. And, um, you know, basically all that studying combined with uh, the money I made, combined with the money my wife was making in her career, um, you know, she has uh, had sort of a similarly uh, varied career up till that point. And, um, you know, you put that all together and uh, soon enough we'd achieve financial independence. And um, so that's where I'm at right now, just uh, sort of enjoying it. Um, you know, I started this blog, Awesome Secrets, where I can write about personal finance or, you know, things related to that, whatever kind of excites me. And, um, you know, like I said, I have a, I'm a personal finance junkie. I have a passion for financial education and planning just like you. And, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking about, you know, going somewhere with that, but I'm, I'm taking it slow and just, just enjoying things right now. There's a huge need. There's a huge need for greater education. And so <laughs> I think everybody should have a financial blog and I think everybody should should be a teacher. And uh and if for nothing else you learn you have a reason for learning. You have a uh, something something to learn. I was reading a book this morning called uh what is it? The Birth of I gotta look here, it's next to my desk. The Birth of Plenty by William Bernstein. And the thing that my favorite my favorite thing about William Bernstein is that he uses writing as his way of learning. So if there's a subject that he doesn't know anything about and he's interested in it, he'll go write a book on it. And he just simply uses the process of writing the book to guide his own research. And that's one of the biggest benefits I feel to you know doing a podcast or doing a blog is simply you have a guiding principle for your own research. So you can research a topic, write about it, share that knowledge with someone else, and then you can help someone else get their start. So I think, awesome. I, I say go for it. We need, we need a lot of people out there and uh, we need a lot of voices, especially in the unconventional conventional strategies that may be a little bit possibly more effective than mm. uh, what's commonly preached. <laughs> sure. I, I'm interested. Uh, I'd like to go back to the startup. And I'm sure. interested. Well, actually, let's start with, uh, let's start with uh, more sequentially. And because you, you've raised some fascinating 
varying directions in your story. But back with college, did you do a PhD right through undergrad, master's, PhD, or did you work concurrently? How did you handle that process of, of getting a PhD in computer science? Yeah, so as an undergrad, I, I, uh, I really got into the material that I was studying, and I sort of, somewhere around, I don't know, junior year, I, I discovered this PhD thing. I said, wow, you can just keep studying, you know, and you can, you can just get even deeper into stuff. And, and then eventually you could be a researcher or a professor and you can just, you know, I, I could build intelligent robots, you know, and that could be my, my life. And it just seemed like a really, um, it, it, I always sort of wanted to, uh, have the, have freedom. And mm-hmm. my idea of, of freedom back then was, was like, wow, I can take this career path where I'm free to research the things that interest me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I later found out that it's not—it's not as free as it seems when you when you choose the academic path. Um, you know, if you end up being a professor, you have to worry about grant money and there's uh, teaching obligations and other types of obligations, and it's it's not totally free. And I ultimately I you know chose a different path, but at, at the time that's what I was thinking. I just I really loved what I was. Uh, studying and, and wanted to do more of it. So I ended up spending seven years in, in grad school doing, um, doing AI, and it was, it was really fun. How did you pay for college? Well, PhD programs, um, especially in, in areas like computer science, you, uh, you get um, research assistantships or teaching assistantships, so you get a small stipend. Um, and so, yeah, I, I got paid to through the whole time, a small amount, but uh, certainly enough, enough to, get to keep you going. Yeah. yeah. Have you thought about leveraging your current financially independent status? And can, is that still an interest of yours, for example, to continue to learn about computer science and then just simply to teach online, to, to, to teach, you know, I don't know, create, be the next, I don't know, Salman Khan of, of, of AI. Uh, is that something that's still an interest of yours? Yeah, I mean, at this point, I've, I, I've sort of accumulated a lot of interests, and I like to combine them all. You know, I've got I've got computer science, which I'm you know I'm still passionate about computer science, especially the math side of it. But I've also picked up an interest in finance and gambling, and um, you know all this stuff. So I I um, you know I sort of look at my blog now as like instead of that's my way of publishing papers. Like if I was a professor, I would do conference papers, but now I'm just like a free researcher that can write articles and post them and and there's no peer review and nobody telling me what the subject needs to be and it's so I, I do feel like a researcher and and I do think I'll yeah I'll get on to do some teaching um at some point but um yeah I, I envision it'll I, I see it as um being like it'll be a combination of all my interests yeah that's what I one of the things I've I've just thought about it. I'm not financially independent yet to be able to live off of my investments alone. But having put myself there mentally, I feel like the the major benefit to that is that it kind of eliminates that need to censor your goals and need to censor things around where you can earn an income. And I have always, I always wanted my retirement plan when I was younger. I've been telling people forever. Was, I always wanted to retire and go teach teach college. Seems like the perfect world to me to hang out with people who are interested learners, if that's the case. Uh, hang out with people who are interested learners. Yeah, have enough time working to be meaningful, but enough time off to not be consumed with work. And uh, I, I look at 
you know, something like you're describing, it, any of us. And that's what I re- that's what basically what I'm trying to do with the show is develop a curriculum, develop and teach concepts, and just simply skip the whole go get a job at a university uh, process. So exactly. what a what a cool idea. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the what did you learn from the startup? Um, well, uh, yeah, let's see. I, I guess I, I learned a lot about myself. Um, you know, I, I just learned that, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's tough to be, for for me, it's tough to be in a situation where, um, you know, I can do a lot of creative, I, I maybe can do a lot of creative and interesting work and maybe I can make a company like, a million dollars with some cool um, algorithm I come up with or mm-hmm. something, but you know the problem is I'm I'm only going to see a small fraction of the million dollars no matter what. Right. You know, at best I'm going to get you know a small percent raise or you know I I might have some percentage of the company, but it's not going to be directly connected to like the the thing I'm doing. And so it's uh, yeah, I just I I have a lot of trouble with the sort of. Um, you know, just uh, working for a salary and and uh, it, it's just not motivating enough for me. Right. I want to be able to hit a home run, I guess, and and, and uh, be able to have that drive to do it. And um, yeah, I, I know a lot of people can can be perfectly happy um, just you know working in a regular job environment, but uh, it's it's definitely a tough one for me. I'm always trying to. Um, you know, I get really excited about things. I get really passionate and I'm, I, sometimes I just want to do something really big and I, I feel like I'm putting myself in a box, um, you know, when, when I'm working for a company, e- even, you know, a, a kind of exciting early stage startup, it just wasn't, didn't do it for me. Yeah. I think, I mean, to me, it seems like I pay attention to, uh, who's the guy out in Silicon Valley, Paul Graham, uh, his writings about, uh, his writings about startups. He's the, he's the guy, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I could get my, I could be getting my organizations run up, but I think he's the guy who runs Y Combinator. Yeah. Right. Okay. So he writes a lot about startups and it seems to me also that, and then, uh, the projects that, uh, I, I know Seth Godin put together a project one time of getting people together. And it seems like just the, the, the sheer working in a startup is one of the most can be one of the most amazing educational experiences of all time. I actually worked for about I'd say two months in a, in a startup that a friend of mine had done, and it didn't work out. But I learned so much in that two months about myself and about business. It was an amazing, amazing experience, and just the essence the essence of trying to create something out of nothing mm-hmm. and seeing what goes into that. I mean, it, it has helped me to to be have, to have been associated with that process. It's helped me, and I just have every person that has gone through that, whether or not they cashed out for millions or whether the business went bust. It seems like it's in many ways a very helpful defining process. Yeah, I think I learned in addition to learning about myself, you know, in terms of business knowledge, I kind of I got a good feel for like um, competition and how like you've got to carve out a niche for yourself. Like if you try and go compete with, uh, you know, if you try and go compete with the behemoths, like it's going to be really tough. Like if you're going into an area that's, uh, already saturated, you're just going to be really fighting an uphill battle. And if you're, you know, if you're just an individual or a small team and you don't have a lot of resources, you're going to have to find like a smaller niche. Um, so that yeah that was, that was an important lesson for me. I I don't try to yeah I, I don't try to like do what's um already been done too much. Right. 
And just one of the major lessons that I've learned is that I think it teaches people, especially if you're working in a lean startup, where where I just think a startup is new business. I guess it's it's the, the, the hip word in the tech world is to use startup, but any business is the same. You can learn the benefits of, of staying lean, of targeting a market, and then creating, you know, using other forms of value other than financial capital. Uh, it seems like a... The, the, the primary benefit of a startup is you learn to build something that has value with the goal of getting funded, with the goal of selling out at some point, by starting with nothing but an idea. And it creates that process of saying, I'm, I can have an idea. I can focus on a niche. I can reset when I find one that's, that's a failure. And I can build something that is going to have value literally out of nothing. I can create wealth. And that's what business does. And, and what a creative – what a creative pursuit to then take on and recognize that at every stage of life, we all of us can be creative and create something out of nothing. We identify the niche, and like you just said, find out, hey, that doesn't work, but that's no big deal. I'll go on and find and try another one and find one that does work. So we're back, and uh, just but what I was just saying was that the niche, like just the benefit is that you you recognize the process, and then you can take that process and you can du- duplicate it in, in in future times. The process of creating something something out of nothing. Um, I'm interested in poker, so I've always wanted to talk with. I've had some friends that are, that have have played poker, and I've always wanted to talk with somebody who has done that at a for you know for a long period of time and has made money off of it. How did you start? You said you you had an interest in it, but like actually making money off of it. Do you just like how did, how does that how did that process work for you? Right. So um, it, this was uh, late grad school. A lot of my friends started playing because it got really popular. Uh, I was just playing at home games with people, and uh, at the time, uh, online poker had gotten really popular, and I started playing online and. I just got really obsessed with the game. You know, I just I, it's just really fun, and I and I felt like I had the sort of mathematical tools to be able to figure things out. And so I just, I got way more into it than all my friends and, and ended up spending a lot of time, uh, just, you know, trying to figure out the game and playing the game. And, um, you know, it was all for fun, but I, but I was making good money because the games were really easy at the time. And I remember, uh, joking with my, my wife, who was then my girlfriend, uh, I remember saying, Oh, you know, wouldn't wouldn't it be funny if I was a professional poker player? That would be that'd be pretty hilarious. You know, it's like right. it's a total joke because I was, you know, doing something serious. I had a uh, you know, I was in grad school, I was gonna be a professor, I had serious research to do, you know. Right. I, I couldn't be going off playing a game, but it, you know, it turns out that was actually more my true calling. You know, so um yeah, so so I was really uh I was just really into poker, but, but I, you know, I tried the startup thing because again, that seemed like a more legitimate, um, serious thing to do. Um, but you know, eventually I just said, you know, I got to give this a shot and, and try to play, uh, professionally. I, I I know, you know, I know some people are making money at this. I want to try it. It's just, it's too fun not to give it a shot. And I, I remember thinking like, you know, um, all right, I want to be safe about this, so so I need to have a backup plan. So I said, okay, I'll be a pro poker player. Uh, if I do it for a long, long time and it doesn't work out, I could always be like a high school math teacher, right? You know, so e- even if uh, I have nothing on my resume, there's always going to be a demand for math teachers, and that that's a good backup plan. So that was sort of enough for me to say, you know what, I got to I got to go for it. I got to pursue this right. dream, and um, 
so a, a lot went into it. So, so there's no formula for being a pro poker player. Uh, you know, nobody's going to tell you how to do it. Um, and, you know, most people fail. Very few people figure out how to do it. And when you do figure out how to do it, it it's very personal to you. Everybody uses poker in a, in a different way. Um, for me, I needed to find out, I, I needed to find a way to do it. Um, you know, I couldn't be, uh, you know, I, I had a family, so I, I, I couldn't be just, uh, chasing games around the country or the world and staying up all night and, uh, just being really, uh, having a crazy schedule. So I had to sort of impose a lot of structure. So I had, um, certain days when I would go down to the casino, um, and, uh, you know, sort of, I, I had a schedule, but also I, I knew, uh, you know, from experience that I needed to establish sort of, um, uh, psychological structure because like gambling can drive you crazy. Like it can really mess with your mind. Sure. And if you just go and do it, you know, you might be a great player, but if you just go and do it without really thinking too much about it, things could get out of control. You know, you, you can end up making just really bad decisions because your emotions get in the way. So, so what I ended up, what I did, um, at the start of my poker career was I wrote what I called the constitution, which was like a long set of rules of like, uh, when I should quit, you know, how, how much do I lose in a session before I quit? You know, like, um, what kind of, um, preparation do I need to do? I, I sort of, I created this huge structure. I, I made it into a, a real thing. Um, and so I, so I had this constitution, this set of rules, and then I established a, I guess what I called like a board of directors consisting of my, uh, my wife, my best friend and my dad. And after every poker session, the deal was I had to send them an email, uh, describing how the session went, wow. uh, the ups and downs, what I was thinking. So I imposed a kind of social pressure on myself. Right. I knew I was going to be reporting to them. So I couldn't like go off the deep end and do anything too stupid. Cause it was just, there was a lot, you know, it, like I, like I said, I was, I made it into a real thing, like a, a real thing where there was accountability and, uh, you know, it, the constitution didn't stay fixed. It, it evolved over the five years that I played because I would, I would see what was, what was necessary in terms of rules and structure. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, doing this from the beginning made all the difference. Like there, there's people don't really, you know, most people don't really understand what, what, poker and gambling is all about like um it's not really you know sure you have to have technical skills and you need to read the other players all that stuff's important but what i've learned is the number one thing is uh managing yourself by far um you need to have self-discipline and and self-knowledge and be able to introspect the whole time um and if if you can't do that um if you're not seeing yourself clearly you're gonna fail um, Sounds like exactly what's needed to be a, a good investor. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. I mean, I, I, yeah, I've got plenty to say about gambling, investing, and how they're all the same thing, you know, deep down. Uh, and unfortunately, people don't don't have a great understanding of that. Yeah, it's it's. I'm obsessed with the concept of of psychology of how psychology and our own inner psychology and the psychological you know, the external psychological forces affect our own behavior. I read a book, I don't remember the name of it, uh, but it was written by a guy who, he was a well-known Wall Street 
guy. I, I didn't. I can't remember his name right now. But he was going through all of the different investment strategies that work on Wall Street, and he was very particular. And a lot of times, people people often say, "Well, there's no <clears throat> excuse me, there's no investment strategy that that works better than another." And I understand that line of thinking. But this guy is a very thoughtful guy. He goes through all of these. It's like about forty different specific investment strategies. But the key thing I took away from the book that he said is he said that the number one thing reason why an investment strategy works is because the pe- people stick to it. And he made the point that he made the uh, hypo- he hypothesized that the reason why indexing has been such a successful strategy over time, the reason why something like the S and P five hundred index or the reason why uh, the Dow Jones index have have enjoyed such consistent returns is because there's no emotion. And so there's a very clearly written, here's what composes our index, here's our investment strategy. But many of the other investment strategies that, in his opinion, also work, people simply, they just haven't been stuck to over a long period of time, and and people are always bouncing around. And I see everywhere through the investment world the importance of, the importance of, of, uh, uh, Behavior. I just reviewed a, a study last week that that a uh, Bernstein Financial Advisors came out and they published this. It was all over the the financial Twitterverse uh, because it was such a startling chart. But they published they used the Dalbar numbers for the average investment return of the average person over the over the the night from 1993 to 2013, and the average investment return for the average investor was just over two percent. It was the third lowest of any asset class, and all of that is based upon behavior. And so feel free, teach us any lessons you can from the world of poker because I see it as, as inextricably, like, un, as perfectly aligned, the importance of behavior and what we choose to do and our ability to manage our emotions, follow a plan, avoid the emotional ups and downs when it comes to investing. So share with us your wisdom, anything you have learned and applied to the world of investing. Yeah, so I can tell you a few things. Um, I mean, what, one thing this makes me, makes me think of is a very common... I mean, they, they, well, what happens pretty much all the time in poker is that if players are are losing, okay, they they call it being stuck. If you're, it, and they call it that because you're you're stuck in your chair. You're losing and you want to win your money back, and you're right. not going to leave. You're not going to leave until you you know win your money back and make like a tiny profit, and then and then people will leave. So that's very common. Uh, people will will stick around for hours, sometimes ten, twenty hours when they're losing. They'll just keep on playing, keep trying to win it back. When they're winning, you know, it's easier for them to leave and they book a win. People talk about booking a win. Right. That is the exact opposite of what you want to do in poker. You want to book small losses. When you're losing, you are not playing well. You're not focused. Of course, hmm. you know, that, it, it's kind of obvious when you think about it. Like you're going to be – your judgment gets cloudy and everything. Mm-hmm. So that's when you lose. You want to book a lot of small losses. When you're winning, you want to stay because you're winning. You are – Thinking clearly, something is going right. You know, maybe you're getting lucky, but you're also going to be uh, seeing things clearly, and and you've got you know things feel good. When I'm winning, I just let my stack grow and just keep on crushing the competition. And when I'm losing, you know, I I might stay, but I'm I'm always thinking, you know, it might be quitting time, you know, and and so yeah, I I don't know I don't know what the secret is to get people to start doing the the opposite of what they are doing, but it certainly is. That's the way it works. Do you find, have you found, and I don't know if you have data or just a a feeling, 
if you were to average your winnings and and your losses, do you find that the majority of your I guess stake, the growth of your of your accounts, did it come in a small number of games or was it, you know, was it more that you when you were winning, you want to, you know, a, a consistent amount and then you quit? Or was it of, you know, 5% of the games is where you won, you know, 80% of your money or, or anything like that? Do you have any idea? Um, I think it's a, it's a bit more random than that. But, but definitely the, the way I approach it, I do end up having, like I said, I, I book more big wins and small losses. So, so a few big wins and a lot of small losses. Um, but that's, that's sort of just, you know, as a result of how I manage things. Because it makes me, it makes me think. Well, a, it's it's exactly the sunk cost fallacy that I see everywhere. Is one of the most poisonous fall- fallacies that we have is the sunk cost fallacy, where we can't seem to we can't seem to walk away once we've put money in. You know, the example that I used to illustrate it is: let's say that my car has a transmission problem, and I go and I spend a thousand dollars fixing the transmission, and then two weeks later it has a, an engine problem, and the and I get an estimate it's going to be a thousand dollars. Well, statistically, it's been proven time and again that it's much more likely that after spending $1,000 on the car, <clears throat> I'm likely to go ahead and want to make that up by investing the $1,000 into, env- into the engine so it keeps going. But that is logically an absolute total fallacy because they're separate events. They're completely unrelated, and I should be making a fresh, a fresh decision at each time. I should make a fresh decision about fixing the transmission, and I should make a fresh decision about fixing the engine. But man, is that tough to do. <laughs> and I see this in, in planning for people all the time is that what happens is that you your experience or at least your story in walking away from computer science to pursue some things that are not – in line with what you studied is unusual because most of the time we spend a lot of time studying something. I've experienced this with uh, physicians and attorneys, probably because physicians and attorneys invest so much time and so much energy into uh, into their education. And a lot of times you find with a physician or attorney, they say, I hate this. I don't want to do this anymore. Well, why don't you quit? I can't quit. I've already invested. Yeah, but I've already invested all this time and money into this degree. Yeah, but if you know you hate this and you don't want to do this, Stop. <laughs> you know, don't don't spend if you if you know that you don't want to do something, then don't spend any more time doing it. Now you, you you should work out a reasonable plan for how to change to something else. It's intelligent to plan and and, and design how to jump ship. But once you've recognized, hey, I this is not the right fit for me. Bail. Don't worry about what you've sunk into it because it's a complete. It's all done. It's a sunk cost. It's done. It's gone. You're not getting that time. You're not getting that money back. Make a fresh decision based upon you know where you are. Yeah, yeah. That that also reminds me of just. I always think that there's not enough proud quitters out there. Like I, I consider myself a proud quitter. I've quit lots of jobs. I've quit lots of projects. I I like abandoning stuff. I stay mm-hmm. light on my feet and. Uh, you know, it's. It, I think there's no uh, there's no shame in that. You know. Yeah, there, there's not. Uh, but yet, what what happens is we're conditioned to be. We're conditioned by our society, and I would say largely by school. We're conditioned to want to be part of the pack. So, in high school, were you a good student? Were you an A student, or were you a, a lower student? Yeah, yeah, I was a good student. Okay, so what I experienced, I was a good student as well. I I, I did academics came easily to me, and. You know, you would get the you would get the hundred percent on the test. Well, what are you quickly? What are you quickly? Uh, 
you know, expected to not do. You're not expected to not show that to anybody. So every time I would ever get a paper handed back in high school, I would immediately cover up the score so that no one knew that I had gotten a perfect score or gotten an A. And so what happens is that this it's conditioned into us that you can't be too good, you can't be too bad, you got to be middle of the pack. And so this conditioning over time makes it so that we are insecure about quitting the crowd. Uh, I had many people that went to college at a certain college just because that's where their friends were going to college. Uh, I had many people join a career because that's what they're accustomed to. My dad was an attorney. My grandfather was an attorney. So therefore, this is what I do. Very few people actually sit down and say, I'm going to choose my career based upon understanding what my specific skills are, my specific values. Rather, it just kind of runs with, here's what I'm familiar with. And, And yet, when you look at and study success, you find people are willing to walk away from the crowd. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that's uh, it's a neat story. It's neat to see. I love seeing parallels in, in, in different things. So with building up, up your gambling, did you, just, did you just start with the money that you had? Did you borrow money? Like how did you did, – did it get it to a point where you just played small and slow and kept investing in your own until your pots got bigger? Or, or, or how, how, did that, how did you finance it? Um, yeah, well, I mean, it, it doesn't take too much to, to have a, a bankroll to play. So I, I had enough saved up that I could, you know, lose, you know, 10 buy-ins and be okay. And, and since I was a, a pretty skilled player, um, you know, bankroll was never, never a real problem. Okay. Um, and, and that's, uh, so, so, well, that, that actually reminds me of another kind of lesson is that like, um, people think like, uh, something like going and being a pro poker player, like that's a big risk. That's a real risky thing. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it is. Like uh, you know, you have to you have to have what it takes, and and uh, you know, you don't want to go years and actually be a loser and um, not really realize it. But in terms of like the the math of it, you're in poker. You're making tons and tons of small bets. Okay, and and they're all well, they're for the most part, they're uncorrelated with each other. And so you've got the principle of the law of large numbers on your side. So, and, and this is something that I guess most people just, uh, they, don't, uh, they don't really have a great grasp of this principle, that if you make tons and tons of small bets, um, and they're all uncorrelated, and if you have an edge every time you bet, so if you have a, a slight advantage, then you are guaranteed to win eventually. Um, and so, so the process of playing poker to me, like to some people, would feel risky and unsafe. But to me, if I can identify that I have an edge over the competition, it feels very safe. Sure, there's <laughs> going to be um, short-term ups and downs, but if I play full-time for a year, it's a mathematical fact that I'm going to win. Um, whereas if you put your money into the stock market for one year, uh, it's more like making one big bet, and you may win, you may not. It's definitely more risky than playing in a poker game with an edge interesting it it makes me think of the difference between entrepreneurs and employees employees think entrepreneurship is risky in my experience at least entrepreneurs think employment is risky (laughs) and an entrepreneur says listen you have one paycheck one customer that's the company you're working for if you get fired if you lose that one customer you lose everything i've got a hundred, ten, or a hundred, or a thousand, or a million customers. If I lose one or even twenty of my customers, it's no big deal. I'm not gonna. Why would I place all my bets on one paying customer? <laughs> it's a reframing of risk. Yes, 
Yeah, I mean, that's the way both my, my wife and I over the last decade, that's how we have approached things. We've made a lot of bets, tried a lot of different things. Some succeeded, some failed. Um, but that's that's just how we do it. Yeah, it's um, it's always been uh, weird for me to be at a job with a with a salary. It's it's like I, I can't leverage the law of large numbers then. Now, you speculated on Bitcoins, and you used the word speculated. So you were hoping for a broad-scale market adoption of Bitcoins and a major increase in price, and then you had an exit plan? Or you said, hey, I think Bitcoins are awesome, and I want to own them. What was your, what was your philosophy behind choosing to speculate on Bitcoin? Right. So um, I guess I, I had originally heard about Bitcoins in like 2010. Somebody had told me about this like oh, there's this internet money, it's based on cryptography, it's really cool. And I, I read a little bit about it. I thought it was just a theoretical idea that was, that was really interesting. I didn't think you could actually own them. But then in, uh, in 2013, I, I started to see that uh, WordPress was uh, starting to accept Bitcoin payments. And I said, like, wow, this thing is actually becoming like a real thing. And I, I read a little bit more about it. And I was like, yeah, this is, I get it. I, I to some degree, I understand the algorithm. I see that it's based on cryptography, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, so so partly I just wanted to buy some because as a computer scientist, I felt like of course I should own some. It's like this is a huge breakthrough, and I want to be a part of it. Right. Um. Uh. So so there there was just the it was sort of like um investing based on just pure interest, but there was also this feeling of like. From a gambler's point of view, I'm like, wow, this is this seems like one of the best bets I've ever seen because it's it's the perfect storm of something that works and and yet it's like the amount of fear and confusion surrounding it is just absolutely huge. I mean, at the time that I first bought in, it was like to talk about bitcoins with people, it was, it was bizarre. I mean, I, I talked to um, a guy who was actually a, a professor and actually specialized in um, networking. And, and even he told me like, oh, Bitcoins, you know, those are mostly used by um, drug dealers right. online and you don't want to get involved in that. And like there was just this and I don't know, I just it's like I, I smelled blood or something. I just, uh, you know, it just it, like I said, it felt, felt like the perfect storm. And, and um, you know, I, we only made a relatively small bet in terms of, you know, I, I would never bet a lot of my net worth on something like that. But, um, you know, my, uh, my wife and I both talked about it. We both got really excited and, and went for it. Um, uh, there, there is a, a lesson I learned, um, though. It, so it, this is part of the reason why I, you know, so, so I usually don't speculate on stuff like individual stocks because I usually, I'm just super skeptical. I never mm-hmm. think that I know what's going to happen. Um, but there's another reason not to speculate, and that is that weird stuff can happen on the upside. There can be costs that you didn't anticipate. Mm-hmm. Like you put the money in, if you lose, you just lose. But if you win, like what happened with Bitcoins is I won too fast, and then I had to sell some and pay short-term capital gains. Right. And I never anticipated that. Right. I also also got scared that somebody was going to you know hack, hack me and steal my Bitcoin. So I, I had to buy a computer and generate a private key and do, do take all these um, precautions to make sure they were secured. And there was another cost. And so in the initial stages, when you're calculating sort of the expected value of the bet, you, you need to take into account those uh, upside costs, the, the sort of intangible stuff. 
um, so yeah, it's I, yeah, it's not um, speculating is not uh, is not what I like to do, and and and, it, and I I'm kind of proud of myself for having a success with bitcoins and not saying like oh now I want to invest in the the next coin or some right, other thing. Right. not not sort of getting my ego involved, just realizing like okay I got really lucky, but it doesn't mean I have any special talent here. It's just maybe a once in a lifetime thing. Right. And it, it seems it's a good point. Have you ever read a book called the richest man in Babylon? No. Best personal finance book ever written in my opinion. Uh, check it out. It's, it's a fun read and it's one of the few personal finance books I can recommend without, without reservation. Uh, I just reread it and I think I had read it a long time ago, but I had completely forgotten how good it was. And I just reread it and I was just struck by how amazing it is as far as distilling the secrets of how to, how to get rich into simple actionable things that are system agnostic. It can be applied whether you are in the U.S. or whether you're in Africa. It can be applied whether you're... I mean, the book is written in the era of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And so it's in some ways, it's so much easier to read. But one of the things that I noticed when in reading the book was that he talks about you have to move when you see an opportunity. And it's something that poker, I think, is probably an interesting... You draw an interesting parallel from poker and from and from your experience in that world over to the world of investing. And it seems like there's a balancing act between seeing something when and, and just having the courage to move. In Richest Man in Babylon, he gives – they give this two it's, – it's written in the form of this, this – uh, uh, almost this uh, – what's the word? Not, not – um, Socratic, Socratic method is written almost in the Socratic dialogue with the teacher and, the, and class, and they're talking about times they had an opportunity to get a deal, and they walked past it. They walked past it, and they they procrastinated. And he was talking about how if you procrastinate when opportunity is there, you walk away. Now, there's a difference between procrastinating when you see opportunity and just being stupid and 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 avoiding a bad bet. But there seems to be that that common thread with people who build wealth. That they can look at an opportunity, think through the odds, see something, see that this is possible, and then take action and not dither around wishing that they had done something. And then you see that there's – at least my observation is that in many of the biographies of wealthy people that I've looked at, it seems like there's a couple – there are a couple of key points in their life, a couple of big bets that make a major difference, those speculations. But then you you quickly pull back and you protect yourself and then try not to lose again. And I have no idea how to teach that. I don't know. Maybe – do you have any ideas as far as how to teach that gambling mindset of take the bets, don't take a dumb bet, but – don't be scared to move when the time when you see something and you know the odds are in my favor. I need to play this hand. Have you thought about that at all? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a tough one. Um, it's. I think it's worth it for people to learn about about fear and understand like the psychology of fear and the chemistry of fear and how like fear is like the number one killer of rational decisions. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, I I think just having like really having that ingrained in you and understanding that like uh you know if you if you're passing on something it it could often be because of 
irrational fear. Right. Like that's one of the most common things. And so, um, you know, understanding fear, having a lot of reasons to not be afraid, a lot of backup plans, a lot of, um, you know, I, I, uh, I try to think about abundance a lot, thinking about what I have and, you know, e- even if I lose, everything will be okay. You know, um, I don't know, just, uh, yeah, yeah. Get, getting rid of that fear is, is probably a huge thing. Um, an- another thing from a practical perspective is, um, you know, you, you have to be available for the opportunities. So when I was quitting my last job, um, on my last day, somebody was asking me, you know, why are you quitting? You know, I, d- I didn't have anything I was in particular I was going to do, but I told them like, well, if, if I'm here and some amazing opportunity comes along, I can't take it because I got to go to work and right. do all my stuff. But if I'm, if I'm free, if I'm at home and something comes around, you know, I, I can do it. So, so I've got, you know, I got lots of free time. I keep a lot of cash in my portfolio. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to go, you know, when, when the opportunity arises. Right. Um, so that's, you know, you, you got to be ready um, from a practical perspective. That's a good point. I hope you write an article on that. I've observed that if you have time on your hands and it's not pre-committed, there are so many spontaneous, wonderful experiences that can be had that you can't have if your time is committed. And are you familiar with a blogger named Tynan? No. Okay, no. you would enjoy this blog because he also played professional poker for a while, and he still probably what it sounds like you probably do. He still plays occasionally, mm-hmm. but he spends most of his time coding a new blogging um, platform. His website is tynan t y n a n dot com. The interesting thing though is he writes about he writes about uh, taking. Well, he, he likes he travels a good bit. But when he talks about how he gets his travel deals, the key thing that I see is is that a he doesn't have he doesn't have a regular job where he has to be, uh, he's single and he lives a mobile lifestyle so he can just get up and go in in a moment. But he'll he gets these deals sometimes that are just these crazy travel deals where he can fly from California. He lives in California. Uh, he can fly from California to Asia for a, a couple hundred bucks. But the trick is is that. He doesn't get, you know, he uses this one side. I can't remember it or I would, I would give them props. But uh, the trick is that he doesn't know until he clicks buy whether he's going to Japan or China. <laughs> but, and so it's like they, they'll send him to either place and, and the ticket is just one of these, these, these quick things that's available. Or that there's a deal that's offered but you can only work if you can travel midweek, Wednesday, Wednesday to Wednesday. And if you look at things like plane fares, if you're stuck in the world of employment where you have to go on you leave on Friday afternoon and come back on Sunday evening, that's where your your costs are the are the most are the most expensive. But if you can leave on Wednesday and come back on Wednesday, and if you can change your flights and you can take the weird schedules, then all of a sudden your need for money goes down substantially. So I think it's such a valuable point that you that you make. Just having time and cash available for spontaneous, serendipitous experiences can be a valuable planning tool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What's it like? Uh, I, I, what's it like being financially independent? Like what's your what's your average week like? Um, yeah, so I wrote a a, a blog post about this um, just because uh, you know just to fill people in on what it what it's like because I know yeah yeah I mean I I used to be this way and I know a lot of people are this way they don't it's they have a hard time imagining what it's like to just be be free all day and have no work to go to and stuff so I um you know a typical week 
I, uh, yeah, I will play poker sometimes. I'll go down on, uh, on a Monday and stay overnight. Um, they give me a free hotel room. It's great. Um, why did they do that? I've never understood that. (laughs) Well, um, you know, they, they don't, they don't really have sophisticated algorithms figuring out like who are the winners and losers. You know, I'm, I'm probably not great for the gambling economy down there because I'm kind of sucking money out of it. Right. But, you know, they, they're just happy to have players come down. Um, and so I'm just a player and, 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 uh, you know, I think especially cause I live a little farther away from the casino, they try to entice me with giving me a free hotel room. Um, I'd be going whether I got the free room or not, but they don't know that. So, so do they, and, and I get, I, I guess I, my impression, I've never gambled. Uh, and so my, imp- I think I've walked through like three casinos in my life. Uh, but my impression is that they're just basically the more, the bigger your, your hands that you're willing to play, the bigger the pots that you're willing to play, then that would be, you know, they would assign you and, and be willing to give you more stuff. But do they just walk up to you and say, Hey, here's some free stuff. Like how, how does it the, the transaction actually work? Do you expect that they're going to give you a free room? Do they always do that? How does it work? Yeah, so you, you get a player's card where they, they sort of track what you're, you're doing. So if you're, if you're playing the, um, the games like Blackjack and uh, uh, Baccarat, and if you're playing against the casino, um, you're going to get all kinds of perks because you're, really, you're losing a lot of money directly to the casino, and, and they're always they're going to... They're going to keep track of that on using your card, and then they're going to um, give you the comps based on on that. If I, I play poker, which they don't make as much money off of poker, they they take like a a small rake out of every pot, mm-hmm. uh, and but but it's enough so that we we still get comps, and you know you you get the stuff mailed to you or emailed to you, and um, you know I get an email every month. They say here's your offers. You know you get a free hotel room. Uh, you come down here, you show up on a Monday, we'll give you 30 bucks. You know, it's like, uh, it's pretty much, I mean, it really feels like a dream sometimes. I'm like, really? You're going to pay me to come down here and just sit there and then these people are going to hand me more money? It's like, I can't, I can't believe it. And, uh, you know, it all comes down to like, um, I guess, benefiting from the fact that people don't understand probability and statistics, and, which is too bad, but I'm certainly, I'm certainly uh, able to cash in on that. Do you get bored playing poker at this point, or do you still enjoy it? Um, I don't get bored. Um, I, I think a lot of people, uh, if they tried to play professionally, they'd get really bored because you have to fold most of the hands. You're actually mostly just observing and watching and all that. Uh, I don't know. I just uh, I've got I've got something about me. I, I can sit there and just stare at the cards for like hours and hours. I, so I recognize that, and I'm sort of taking advantage of that talent, if you will. <laughs> I don't know. Interesting. So I didn't. I interrupted your week. Uh, keep going. So what? What else? So you go. Is there a day of the week that you usually go down? Yeah, I used play? to go on Mondays. Okay. It's, um, I don't know. Start start the week off with a nice relaxing gambling getaway. Seems like a good way to start the week. And I, I don't know. I just uh, everyone else is going to work, and I like the the contrast. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good psychological tool to remind yourself of how good life is. Look yeah. at all these suckers driving to work. I'm going to go play some poker. Well, you know, hey, everybody's you know doing their thing. That's <laughs> it's fine. But um, you know, I'll come home and then and then uh, you know I take care of a lot of errands around the house and stuff. My uh, you know my wife is is busy doing more serious work. She's a I mean, she's around the house too, but she's a uh, finance recruiter and has to make all kinds of calls and 
do all kinds of serious business deals mm-hmm. and stuff. So, so I take care of stuff around the house. Um, you know, I've been enjoying doing some writing. Um, you know, I'll, uh, you know, when the weather's nice, it's, you know, go for bike rides, you know, get outside. Um, certainly I, I love learning about stuff. I spend tons of time reading and, uh, studying things and, and all that. Um, and, uh, let's see, you know, it, it's just, um, yeah, I, I've been spending a lot of time, you know, thinking about where I'm going to go with, uh, you know, financial education and financial planning, what I, what I want to do with that. Um, Fridays, I, I, this is, this is something I think, um, should be like, this should be a thing is Friday is my reflection day. So I'll take some time on Friday to, to just reflect on the week, right? Like, uh, look back at the ups and downs and, you know, lessons learned and all that stuff. And, um, man, I I really think if, if everyone had a reflection day or half a day at the end of the week that, uh, it would, uh, make the world a better place. But unfortunately it's not a part of our culture. Um, It's a common, interesting point you make. I notice it's a common theme in various circles. So for example, if you study the world of productivity and how to be more effective with your time, one common theme is making the time to have a weekly review where you sit down and you review your projects, you review your goals, you review your actions, you kind of just get organized and get get refocused. Uh, if you go, I just listened to a Jim Rohn seminar uh, when I was traveling last week, and I listened to a seminar, and he was talking about, uh, I think he said, take an hour at the end of the day, take a, uh, or he said an hour at the end of the week, take a day at the end of the month, and take a weekend at the end of the year. Basically, just take time to recognize and chronicle and document the lessons and document the experiences that you've had in the past day, in the past week, in the past month, in the past year, so that you can use all of that information and all of that knowledge and all those experiences for the next year. So instead of just repeating and repeating and repeating the same thing, the endless cycle, you can take what went well, you can take what went poorly, and you can learn from that so that you can actually improve the coming time. So it's interesting to hear you say that it's made a difference in your life because it's a theme I've noticed in many, many people, many successful people and met from many disciplines. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's kind of an intangible thing. It's hard to put a value on it, but I definitely, I, I wrote a post about my, my book of lessons and, you know, at the end of the week I might, I might write a lesson in my book of lessons. And, and that book is like the most important book that I own because it's the, it's the book I'm going to, I'm going to go back to, you know, to make sure I don't repeat mistakes and, uh, yeah, so, um, also, um, you know, Friday is a day to sort of, um, I like to, I like to sort of take a pause and sort of start to get excited for the weekend because I'm going to be, you know, getting out with my family, trying to do, you know, fun, creative things. And like, it, it really stinks to like work. You, you might have th- fun things to do on the weekend, but if you're working right up till like 6 PM on Friday, there isn't this nice transition. It's like work, 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 and then bam, okay, better have fun now. I'd rather sort of like ramp up into the fun, sort of get excited, talk to my wife about it. Yeah, we're going to do this and this and sort of get (laughs) fired up, you know? Um, so yeah, it's another one of those things. I mean, I just, I really, I wholeheartedly appreciate being able to live this lifestyle. I mean, I do not take it for granted. Um, you know, I've worked very hard at certain times during my life and, and to be able to like, 
shape my life and have a reflection day and be able to like just just uh, carve out this schedule that just sort of uh, creates a good life flow. I mean, it's it's amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I, I I hope I never take it for granted. It sounds it sounds really amazing, and it sounds. You make a good point. You know, I don't, I don't do that as far as like getting excited about the weekend, but I think that's a good idea. Um, I wrote that down as something I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna implement that a little bit. Do a little <laughs> bit more planning. I always <clears throat> Saturdays usually sneak up on me. I'm so busy during the week that they kind of sneak up on me, and and I usually don't necessarily have something perfectly planned. But um, it's a good idea to get have something planned and then get your family excited about it, about it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I want to write a post about uh, something I would call like the visionary slacker. Like, like I consider myself a slacker in the sense that I, uh, I leave a lot of time open in my schedule, and I do it on purpose. You know, just just big chunks of empty time. I really try to do that. And a lot of people call that like slacking off, or you know, you don't want to make commitments or whatever. But it's like, uh, I there's there's just some value in that. Like, it's it's. Uh, I don't know. It's it's really it's hard to describe, but um, you, you know, one, one, like I said, one of the things is you you can take the time to get excited about the weekend. You can take the time to reflect. You can uh, capitalize on opportunities that pop up. Um, you know, it's not that I never want to commit to anything, but um, you know, it's it's easy to get buried in commitments, even even if you are financially independent, retired. I mean, there's a million things to do, a million things to potentially sign up for. And uh, I make a conscious effort not to. Book recommendation for you. Have you read Pat Schulte's uh, book, Live on the Margin? No. Uh, Pat Schulte and his wife write a blog at bumfuzzle.com, B-U-M-F-U-Z-Z-L-E.com. He should be on the show sometime in the next few weeks. Uh, He travels full-time with his family, so it's hard to nail him down to a time when he's got Wi-Fi to do an interview. Because he's on the road. But he wrote a book called Live on the Margin, and he wrote extensively. I've never heard anyone other than you and he use the term the slacker lifestyle. (laughs) But he wrote his whole book. The first half of it is all kind of about basically being a slacker. And he uses that as a metaphor for exactly the point that you're making. So check out his book. It's Live on the Margin. I think it's a it's a pretty cheap Kindle book that you can buy and his blog is bumfuzzle.com. You'll you would you would enjoy reading it. It's quite good. He it's part, the first half of it is about personal finance strategies and then the second half of it is about trading strategies. He comes from the background of a commodities trader and he uh and now he's kind of a semi-swing trader with stocks evidently if you if 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 by going on what he wrote in the book he's kind of a a swing trader in in some ways and that's how he earns his money to keep himself on the road so check out his book you would you would like it sure sure yeah another another um thing along those lines is uh well richard linklater's old movie slacker is one that's really inspiring to me i don't know if you've i've never heard of that no richard linklater yeah, Linklater. He he makes great movies, and and Slacker was um, <clears throat> it takes place in in Austin, Texas, and all, all it is is it's just people walking around Austin, and and each character only stays in the uh, the movie for like five minutes, and you just get a little snapshot of their conversation, and then it drifts to another conversation, and these are all just slackers. They're just walking and talking, <laughs> and, and and that's it. And at one point in the movie, this guy's like. Uh, well, you know, I got band practice in about five hours, so I better just mosey along. You know, it's like it's got this feel to it. That's, <laughs> <laughs> but 
but what Linklater says is like he didn't intend it to be like like slacker in terms of a, a derogatory term. He just mm-hmm. he wanted to present people who you know they uh, he said these people choose to um, they're they're proud of being a slacker because they use their time as they wish you know and some of the conversations that they're having in this movie are amazing. It's mind blowing stuff you know and it's um, it just arises organically out of. Uh, you know, walking, getting the blood flowing. <laughs> so it does seem that, and I don't want to. I mean, it, it it certainly seems that we miss out on a lot just due to how scheduled our lives are, especially in the work world, especially in the work world where we have to be there in a certain for a certain amount of time. Our lives are just so scheduled. It is challenging to find the time and the space for, I mean, when do we take the time to think? When do we take the time to, to think about what we want? It, my, one of my big learnings from being a financial planner was I learned that most people don't know what they want. And the biggest challenge is try to help people to figure out what they want. And how do you figure out what you want if you don't spend time thinking, if you don't have that space that you can be in touch with yourself. And, and what happens is we're always scared to go into the woo-woo world where, where we're getting in tune, tune with yourself. But the reality is, is that even I, I felt like, and, and I feel like I've done an okay job with it, and, and maybe, you, maybe you were good at it, but many people, we, we, we spend so much time living according to others' expectations that we don't have any idea what we want. And, and we find out that, you know, again, we're, we're out of, we're into, we're a physician and we spend all this time and all this money and a decade of our life becoming a doctor. And then now we've been in practice for four years. And then I come in as a financial planner, I sit down and, I, and all of a sudden we discover that this person together, just through, you know, a series of questions, we discover that there's no, like the person doesn't want what they're doing mm-hmm. rather that that what they actually want is something completely different. Now, you can't go back and undo the past, but it, sometimes you can get to, if you know what you want, it's a lot easier to get there more quickly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I got to point out that um, you know my wife has been just invaluable in this whole process of leading a free life because it's, it's so great to have someone around that you can... Uh, you know, that, that's on your wavelength and can give you smart feedback and you know, just to have people around, to surround yourself with people that, um, you know, that, that think the way you do. So, you know, um, you know, so you're able to, uh, not feel like a total freak or not feel like an outcast. So, um, you know, having her around has been, uh, super helpful. And I, I would, you know, any, I would advise anybody who's, um, you know, embarking on a, a, a weirder lifestyle, you know, Obviously, you should uh, you should find the other people who are into that and and spend your time talking to them. That's what uh, that's what we do online, right? Make communities of people. Daniel, your website is awesomesecrets.com. Anywhere else that you'd like people to find you? Any other way that you'd like people to connect with you? Um, no, that's uh, yeah, I think that's that's good. Uh, awesome Secrets is um, where I'm doing my thing right now. Anything else you'd like to share before we go? Uh, no. words of wisdom, any of your, any of your books from your book of secrets, any of your lessons from your book of secrets? Uh, yeah, don't, uh, don't lift anything really heavy. <laughs> you know, you're, you're worried about what messing your back up. Is that, sure. that the idea? Yeah. 
you know, I had this experience recently, and I thought, man, I'm getting old and maybe mature. I had this experience of of just I've always been the person to go up on the roof and fix my roof and do that stuff because I don't like paying people uh, to do stuff that when it's easy for me to do. But I had the experience the other day. I was looking at somebody trim a tree, and I was thinking, you know, I don't want to climb up ladders and trim trees anymore. Even though I've never fallen off a ladder, that just seems like one of those things that mm, – out of proportion risk. It would it would really mess up my life to fall off that uh, fall out of the tree or fall off the ladder and break my back, versus just paying someone a couple hundred bucks to do it. And I recognized I'm getting old. Maybe I'm <laughs> I'm starting to recognize these these uh, trade offs. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show, Daniel. I really appreciate it. I uh, I'm glad that you reached out to me. I, I really feel. Like I think I said in the introduction, I really feel that, you know, I don't want my show to be about just bringing the same old 80 podcast guests that are everywhere. I mean, if you want to go listen to them, go go Google the other people. And I don't want to just bring a bunch of financial people, but I want to bring interesting ideas. And one of the most interesting ways to do that is to hear from people who are in the community who are who are doing it. So I appreciate your reaching out to me. I'd encourage other other listeners, if you have a story that you think would be interesting, or if you have anything that you want to talk about, I think it's valuable. And sometimes people are intimidated. They feel, well, I'm not, you know, I don't have this, this uh, resume of all these things that I'm going to tell people. But what happens is that when you start hearing people's stories, you can pick up on the themes. And I learned that doing financial planning as I learned more just listening to clients, even though that many were just normal, everyday people, you start to pick up on the themes. So it's super valuable. And I appreciate your making the time to come on. Sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, man. And that's the interview. Told you it'd be fun. <laughs> I told you you'd learn something. That's the show. I uh, appreciate Daniel. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. And I really enjoyed and appreciated just learning from how many times could I say appreciate? I'm glad to be able to learn a little bit from your experience. And I wish you great success. Keep up the great articles. Go over to Daniel's blog at awesomesecrets.com. Check out some of his articles. I like his book of lessons idea. What a fabulous idea to create a book of lessons of all of the things that you have learned over time. What an amazing thing to pass on to your progeny. Wouldn't that be cool if all of us had a book of lessons and that we could write up and give to our kids, give to our grandkids, things like that? I think that's a good idea. I'm going to start implementing that. Note to self, establish a new category in my journal, Book of Lessons. <laughs> Have a great Monday, everybody. Talk to you tomorrow.
Thank you.